Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This one was first broadcast back in the month of June, on June the 5th in 2017. It's a Boomer Boulevard show, and we hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. Chester has his walking shorts on, and sandals, yes, and a, uh, a fishnet shirt. I, I don't know. I, it's not a good look for you, Chester. Not a good look. I don't think it's a good look for anybody. I know it's hot outside. All of a sudden, it's like summertime. It's, what was it, 92 today, I think, and the humidity's starting to climb up there. Oh, buddy. We're in for it now, but <laughs> that's okay. Hi, everybody. This is Bob Pearl. Well, this just... No, you don't have to change... No, keep the shirt on. I don't want you doing this show without a shirt. My goodness, Chester was going to take his shirt off. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the show where we play old-time radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids. Why? Because we're baby boomers. We were around back in the... 50s, many of us, and in the 60s, and uh, that's when the last great days of radio were taking place, and these shows were starting to disappear, but we remember many of them. Now, it's true, some of them we, re- we remember from when they later showed up on television, but nonetheless, we remember them. Shows like Gunsmoke, Ozzy and Harriet, The Jack Benny Show, oh, we remember those shows. Anyway, welcome. Boy, you guys are looking good. Good to see you all here this week. Glad to have you join us on the podcast. We have more listeners all the time, and we're so delighted to have you along. We've got a great lineup tonight. We have an episode of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. That is a real good one. We have an episode of the Halls of Ivy, and then we're going to finish things up with an episode of Gunsmoke, one that has a, I guess you'd call it a morality lesson. So that's what's on tap for tonight. We're delighted to have you with us. Why don't you go get something cool to drink and make yourselves comfortable? And we're going to get started in just a moment. 
this week we're going to kick things off with an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. And this one originally was broadcast on the 11th of November back in 1956. It's entitled The Big Scoop Matter. It's pretty good. A friend of Johnny's who's a reporter is, or has, I guess, stuck his nose where he should not ought. And now people are threatening him. And of course, Johnny is an insurance investigator, and one of the insurance companies he represents just happens to have a $100,000 life insurance policy on this guy, and they're worried. So you take it from there. This is a good one. It's got really good sound quality, and it's got a great cast. Um, it's got Bob Bailey. I like the ones with Bob Bailey the best. Yeah, I do too. There were other Johnny Dollars that weren't bad, but Bob Bailey's the best. This one also features Russell Thorson from I Love a Mystery and other shows, of course. Barney Phillips. Did you know that Barney Phillips used to play Sam on the television episodes of Gunsmoke? Yeah. Larry Thor is in this one. Parley Bear. Uh, Les Tremaine. And the music is by Amerigo Moreno. Here we go. We'll talk about him at the end of the show. Here we go. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, The Big Scoop Matter. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Joe McNabb, Northeast Indemnity, Johnny. Oh, hi, Joe. What's up? At the moment, my blood pressure. Too much work? No. Prospect of having to pay off on a $100,000 life insurance policy. Uh Uh-oh. Fella, I think you know, Johnny. Art Wesley. Oh, sure. Been a pal of mine for years. Reporter. Yeah. Apparently, he's working on a story right now that somebody doesn't want him to report. What do you mean? Night before last, he got beat up in an alley. Yesterday, a car made a pass at him at high speed. What about today? It's early yet, Johnny. Oh, yeah, sure. But let's hope it's not too late. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Home Office, Northeast Indemnity Affiliates, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the big scoop matter. Expense account item one, $18.40. Transportation and incidentals to New York City. I called Art Wesley's paper. He wasn't in and nobody seemed to know where he was. Then I remembered a small bar called Tony's over on 3rd Avenue. I took a cab, that's item two, a dollar and a quarter, and found him in a corner booth. Sorry, Johnny, no bodyguard. The informants I'm working with will take off fast if they spotted one. No informants, no story. That insurance policy your paper took out on you. Who's the beneficiary? A dear departed wife, Joan. Departed? I thought... We split up a couple of months ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, aren't We were living in two different worlds. I wanted a home and family. She wanted a trip to the moon every night. Where is she now? Who knows? On her way to the moon, I guess. Hey, look, this story you're working on, aren't you? It's hot, Johnny. And big, real big. 
A national gambling syndicate, and run by a guy right here in New York. Who? I'm getting close, but I'm not sure yet. When I am, then out come my articles. What's this guy going to do when you push him into a corner? Look, I'm worried about you. You look, Johnny, I'm not as foolish as you think. I've got his name written down and put in a safe deposit box with what evidence I got. That's my real insurance. Oh, all right, look, we've been friends a long time. I'm not going to let you do this alone. Sorry, Johnny. I've got to go it alone. Since I'd gotten nowhere with Art, I decided to try his wife, Joan, even though they were separated. I found her in an apartment on East 68th, but she was hardly what you'd call cooperative. Look, Mr. Dollar, so you're a friend of Art's. At the moment, I'm not. Mrs. Wesley, your marriage with Art is none of my business. But that insurance policy his paper took out on him is. And incidentally, you're still a beneficiary. So? So he could be in danger, those articles he's writing. Why doesn't he drop it? Oh, look, you know Art better than that. Then what am I supposed to do about it? That story is his business. How I feel about things is my business. And come to think of it, I can't see that either of those things is your business. Item three, a dollar eighty cab fare to police headquarters in the office of my old friend, Detective Lieutenant Rastelli. Sure, sure, I know about those attempts on Art's life. So I talked to him and got nowhere. He told me the stories about a national gambling syndicate. It's more than he told me. Supposedly the big boss is here in New York. Now, what are you going to do about it? Look, the minute Art quits thinking he's got to hit the jackpot all by himself and lets us in on it, we'll give him all the protection he... Lieutenant Rustelli. Yeah, yeah, just a minute. It's for you, Johnny. Oh, thanks. Hello? Art Wesley, Johnny. They told me at your hotel where to reach you. Anything new, Art? I'm leaving town for a few hours. This could be it, Johnny. Tonight could be the jackpot. Well, listen, let me go with you. Sorry, I gotta go alone. It's part of the deal. Art, it could be a trap. I can take care of myself. Call you when I get back. Wish me luck. Well, look, wait. Art! Art! Item four, a dollar eighty cab to Art's apartment, where I persuaded the manager to let me in. I was looking for anything that would give me a lead. Then, near the phone on a scratch pad, I found where he'd written the word Watika several times. Sure, Lake Watika, upstate. Art had a lodge there. Item five, $25 even for a rented car. It was a three-hour drive to Lake Watika, which was bad enough. But to top it off, it started to rain, and rain hard. When I finally got to the highway turnoff, the side road of the lake was a mass of mud. Then I got two quick breaks. It stopped raining, and I spotted the six-mile road into Art's place. Half an hour further on, I saw a light. Art's car was parked at one side, and the front door of the lodge was wide open. When I got to it, I saw why. Art was lying in the doorway. Yeah. He was the one who wanted to hit the jackpot. But you can't hit the jackpot with a slug, particularly when that slug is right between your eyes. I drove to the sheriff's office and reported it. Sheriff Tompkins and his boys took over. But in the darkness and the mud, they could only make a routine check. He asked me to meet him at the lodge the next morning, so I did. Uh, uh, Buddy was right here in the doorway, huh, son? Yeah, Sheriff, I didn't move it. And uh, Wesley probably got shot when he answered the door by somebody standing out there on the ground. Because of that bullet hole in the roof? Yeah. 
Right over that shelf that's stocked with canned goods, sugar, salt, and the like. Apparently, he used this place regular. Yeah, he used to do some of his writing here. Were you able to determine time of death? Coroner says between 10.30 and 11 last night. Uh, what time did you arrive? About half an hour after the rain stopped. I'd say quarter to 12. Means it was uh, still raining a good half hour after the killing. Eh, no wonder we found no tracks. Hey, look, Sheriff. I was working on a hot story about a national gambling syndicate. Could be that he found out who the boss was last night, the hard way. Oh? Then uh, you think the killer was from out of town, maybe New York? Yeah. Yeah. Now, where would he stay? Is there a hotel around here? Lake Watika Inn, just outside the village, about six miles from here. Sheriff, I'll check it out. Guests here at the inn, Mr. Dollar. Well, we have only two who checked in yesterday. It's the off-season, of course. Yeah, clerk, who are they? Well, uh, Mr. Cooper yesterday afternoon and uh, Mr. Buckley around dark. Uh Uh-huh. Are they still here? Mr. Cooper is sitting right out there on the terrace, but uh, Mr. Buckley paid in advance and left quite early this morning. I see. Did Buckley give any reason for stopping here? He said he was a traveling man and didn't like to drive in the rain. (laughs) Okay, okay. I'd like you to write down a description of him. I'll pick it up on the way out. Oh, I'll be glad to, sir. Hi. Oh, good morning. Enjoying the scenery? Yes, immensely. Oh, sit down, won't you? Sure, thanks. My name's Dollar. Mine's Cooper. You just check in? I'll just drop by. Uh, I came yesterday. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty up here this time of year. Yes. Yes, certainly is. I I really enjoy places like this in the off-season. It's a nice change. Too bad the weather hasn't been better, huh? The rainstorm last night? (laughs) Oh, I enjoyed that, too. You were out in it? Oh, no. (laughs) No. No, I enjoyed it the way a storm should be enjoyed. In front of the fireplace in my cottage with a drink and a good book. No, Mr. Dollar, I stayed in last night. And that was that. I picked up the description of the other guest, Buckley, from the clerk and gave it to Sheriff Tompkins, who got out a bullet mine. Then I drove back to New York City, turned in my rented car, and took a cab. That's item six, seventy, to Joan Wesley's apartment. Yes. They notified me this morning about Art's death. I don't know what to say. What is there to say? (laughs) Good question, Mrs. Wesley. If only he hadn't been so stubborn. If only he'd given up that story about the gambling syndicate or whatever it was. Yeah. You, uh, you figure somebody in the syndicate killed him? Why, of course. Mrs. Wesley, did you know Art had gone on up to the lodge at Lake Watika? No. Mr. Dollar, I'm rather tired. One more thing. Did you go out last night? No. It was raining. I stayed here in the apartment. All evening? All evening. I see. Well, thanks, Mrs. Wesley. Maybe I was imagining, but it seemed to me Joan Wesley hesitated just a little before telling me she hadn't been out of her apartment last night. And if she had gone to Lake Watika, I checked the basement garage. Her car was clean. Too clean. Item seven, five dollars to the garage attendant for some very interesting information. Joan Wesley had ordered her car washed first thing this morning. Why? Because the wheels were covered with mud. From last night. (laughs) 
I didn't leave this apartment last night. Your car says differently, Joan. You had it washed today because it was all muddy. And the reason it was muddy was because you had it out in the rain last night. Another thing. You told me you didn't know Art had gone to the lodge. You hadn't heard from him. But the switchboard operator told me you had a call from him yesterday. Now, why else would he call you except to tell you where he was going? Well, how about it, Joan? All right. Art did call me yesterday and told me he was going to Lake Watika. And how about last night? Yes. I went out, but not to Lake Watika. Art wouldn't give you a divorce. By killing him, you get your freedom and a hundred thousand bucks. I didn't kill Art. I didn't go up there last night. And where did you go? Might as well know. The reason I wanted a divorce from Art was because I'd found someone else. Oh, That's where I went for a few minutes last evening. Why did you lie about the phone call from Art yesterday? I don't know. I don't know. I was confused. I was... I was afraid it would look bad for me if it came out that I knew Art had gone up there. It doesn't look good for you this way, believe me. Oh, Johnny, I'm telling the truth. Who is this fellow you're interested in? I don't see why he Who is he? His name is Ted Nash. Will you have to talk to him? I sure will. And right now... But I was wrong about talking to Ted Nash right now. I called his apartment and got no answer. Item 9, sixty cab fare to police headquarters in the office of Detective Lieutenant Rostelli. You figure this guy Nash and Joan Wesley could have killed Art and used a gambling syndicate threat as a cover, huh? It's a possibility, Lieutenant. Well, I'll see what I can find out about Nash. How'd you do at Lake Watika? Two guests checked in the day of the killing. One, a man named Buckley. He left early this morning. Sheriff Tompkins has a bullet knot on him. Who else? A fellow named Cooper, who apparently likes to go places in the off-season. Nothing to tie him in particularly. Cooper, huh? We had a rumble some time ago that a guy named Cooper was involved in that gambling syndicate. What? Trouble is, we got no proof. Hey, wait a minute. What's the matter? Art told me he'd put the name of the man he was after in a safe deposit box. If we could find the key to that box. How about Art's apartment? Let's take a look. So we looked, and we found the key, tucked away in a desk, but only a number on it. Nothing to tell where it was located. I gave it to Lieutenant Rostelli, and he promised to check every bank in town if necessary. While I went on back to Lake Watika to see if the man named Cooper at the inn was the same one Rostelli told me about. When I got there, after a frantic three-hour drive, I found him comfortably sitting by the fireplace. Well, uh, Mr. Dollar, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cooper... I'm going to get right to the point. You told me you came up here to enjoy the scenery. Yes, that's fine. Why? The man who was killed last night, Art Wesley, he was trying to expose a national gambling syndicate. Oh, that's very interesting. So? So, I know a police detective in New York who thinks you're a member of that syndicate. Well, now, Mr. Dollar, that's a very serious charge. I presume you have proof. Well? Ah. Uh. No proof. Well, in that case, I don't Mr. think there's any... Mr. long-distance call for you. You can take it on that phone right beside you. Thanks, clerk. Johnny Dollar. Rostelli in New York, Johnny. Hi, Lieutenant. You locate that... Yeah, the safe deposit box. And in it, we found the name of the man Art Wesley was closing in on. It's Cooper. Thanks very right, much. So you... Well, Cooper, you want a proof? We've got it. Evidence that ties you in with the syndicate. Clerk. Well, now, this is ridiculous, Is Dollar. it? Let me tell you the facts about this is, thing. Is, is something the matter, Mr. Dollar? Get Sheriff Tompkins on the phone, clerk. Tell him I've got Art Wesley's killer here. You mean Mr. Cooper? Oh, now, wait a minute. Now, look, Dollar. 
If you'd get your facts straight, you'd drop this silly notion of yours. What kind of facts, Cooper? What time was Wesley killed? Between 10.30 and 11 last night. But, Mr. Dollar, Mr. Wesley's place is some six miles from here. That's right. Why? Well, then Mr. Cooper couldn't have killed him. What do you mean? Last night, I took a drink to Mr. Cooper's cottage here at the inn. What time? Around 20 to 11, and I chatted with him for at least 15 minutes. Are you sure about that? Oh, quite sure. Well, Mr. Dollar, I'll buy you a drink sometime. Cooper strolled back to the bar with a satisfied smirk on his face. So the one man who had to be Art's killer couldn't have killed him. I collared the clerk again and had him repeat his story in detail. If you recall, it rained heavily last night, Mr. Dollar. Yes, yes, I drove through it on my way up here. Well, I was making the rounds of the inn, checking windows, things like that, when the house phone rang. It was Mr. Cooper calling from his cottage. He wanted a drink. You say that was at 20 to 11? Uh, yes, I always jot down the time when I am called away from the desk. All right, go on, go on. Well, when I got to Mr. Cooper's cottage, he was sitting in the living room in front of the fire with a book. Yeah. We chatted a while, and then when I returned here to the desk, I jotted down the time again. 10.55. Well, that does it. What do you mean? Oh, it's a good 20-minute drive from here to Art Wesley's lodge. If he was killed between 10.30 and 11, and Cooper was here at that time, he, he couldn't have done it. Well, I'm sorry, but facts are facts. And... Oh, excuse me. Lake Watika Inn. Uh, yes, just a moment. Sheriff Tompkins, Mr. Dollar. Oh, thanks. Hi, Sheriff. Thought you ought to know, son. Remember that man Buckley we were looking for? Yeah, sure, the other guest at the inn. Yeah, we picked him up. I've been questioning him for an hour. Any luck? No, sir. He's just a traveling salesman who stayed at the inn because he didn't want to drive in the rain. You sure? Buckley swears he doesn't even know Cooper. Just between you and me, Johnny... I think we got the wrong fella. No place again. I decided to start all over. Got into my car and drove to Art Wesley's place. Nothing was changed. I remember the trip I'd made the night he was killed, how it rained heavily until about half an hour before I arrived. How I'd found him lying in the open doorway, a bullet hole in his head. Yeah, and the hole in the ceiling over the shelf of provisions, marking the path of the bullet. It was there, so were the provisions... Canned food, mustard, sugar, package of crackers. There was some... Wait a minute. Sugar. The sugar bowl. I stared at it for a moment. I remembered a couple of things the room clerk at the inn had told me. And suddenly the whole deal slid neatly and quietly into place. I drove back to the inn fast. Cooper's cottage was empty, so I went inside to the bedroom and took a look around. Then I spotted one of the pictures on the wall, a little out of place. I looked behind it. Yeah, just what I expected. Outside, I found Cooper sitting on the terrace in front of the main building. I slid into a chair across from him. Well, Mr. Dollar, what fantastic crime are you going to accuse me of today? Cooper, I got a one-track mind, and it's still stuck on murder. Oh, now, look. Dollar, we've been over this before, and personally, I, I find it quite boring. So much so that it's interfering with my vacation here. That's too bad. Yes, it is. 
So I'm leaving this evening. I don't think so, Cooper. Oh, come now. That Art Wesley no... was trying to expose a figure in a gambling syndicate. You. Well, that's a matter of conjecture. You had to stop him for keeps. Oh, now look, Dollar. The time of Art Wesley's death has been established as between 10.30 and 11 last night. That's right, between 10.30 and 11 last night. And I'm sure you remember the room clerk telling you he was with me in my cottage living room from 10.40 to 10.55. I sure do. So that I certainly couldn't have killed your friend Wesley six miles from here during that time. Except that Art Wesley wasn't killed at his lodge. What are you talking about? You see, I remembered something else the clerk had told me. The night of the killing had stopped raining a little after 11. All right, what difference does that make? All the difference in the world, believe me. Here's what really happened, Cooper. You killed Art Wesley in the bedroom of your cottage here at the inn. I don't mean to You immediately called the room clerk over and chatted with him in your living room for about 15 minutes. He didn't know there was a corpse in the next room. Oh, really? After he left, you took Wesley's body the six miles to his place and planted it in the doorway. And I looked down... Your problem was to make it look like he'd been killed there. Then you remembered. The slug that had killed him hit the wall in your bedroom. That gave you an idea. You figured out the right angle at the lodge and fired a shot upwards from the outside the door. It went through the ceiling at the back. All right, Dollar, I've had enough of your half-baked theories with no proof whatsoever to back them up. Correction, Cooper, this time I've got proof. There was a shelf of food under the bullet hole and a bowl of sugar directly under it. A bowl of... So what? When sugar gets wet, it gets crusty and it stays that way. But the sugar in that bowl was dry. Now, if the killing was between 10.30 and 11, and it rained heavily until after 11, then some rain would have dropped through the bullet hole into the sugar. I see. But, Cooper, the sugar was dry. So the bullet hole was made after the time of the murder, when you planted Wesley's body there. Just a little detail, Cooper, but it nails you. That, and, of course, the fact I found the slug that really killed Wesley just a couple of minutes ago. Oh. Buried in the wall of your bedroom, behind a picture, you'd move slightly to cover it. Well, Dollar, I may as well tell you that I saw you come out of my cottage a few minutes ago. I figured you knew. So ever since you sat down here, I've been holding a gun on you under the table. You know, Cooper, I may as well tell you. Ever since I sat down here, I've been holding a gun on you, too. Well, you... Let's have it. Well, you... You didn't have any gun. big-time gambler bluffed right out of the game. Cooper, you're slipping. <laughs> Item 10, 37.50. Transportation and incidentals back to Hartford. Expense account total, $187.40. Remarks? Cooper's awaiting trial. About Art Wesley... Well, I guess that sugar bowl was a dead man's revenge. And come to think of it, that revenge was pretty sweet. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, colorful New Orleans, from nightlife in the Latin Quarter to the dismal deadly swamps. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood. Written by Robert Reif, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in tonight's cast were Virginia Gregg, Russell Thorson, Barney Phillips... Stacey Harris, Larry Thor, Parley Bear, and Les Tremaine. 
Musical supervision is by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Dan Coverly speaking. That was a good episode. Good sound quality on that one too, right? From 1956, so that was getting on into the end of uh, the great days of radio. November the 11th, 1956, that was yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And the name of that episode was The Big Scoop Matter. A lot of boomers remember Johnny Dollar from the radio. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but my mother used to have the radio in the kitchen a radio in the kitchen. We had one in the bedroom and, oh, we probably had three or four radios in the house. Of course, my sister and I were already into music. Well, not me so much in 56. She was probably just getting into middle school and she was into it. I was only in second or third grade in 1956. But I remember that radio was on in the kitchen all the time and my mom would listen to soap operas while she worked. I mean, she was always busy. Always doing stuff, you know? When Well, like, if she was making dinner, she made it pretty much from scratch. You know, she uh, like if she was going to have a pie for dessert, she would start by rolling out the pie dough, right? And then she would uh, bake the apples or boil them, whatever you do. She wouldn't buy a can of apples, pie filling, and get a pre-made, pie shell. She, she just wouldn't do it. Now, I'm talking about back in the 50s. She might have done it later on. But so anyway, dinner was, uh, preparation for dinner was a long thing. Peeling the potatoes and and uh, prepping the meat and all of that. Yeah, I mean, she was in that kitchen all day and then doing dishes, didn't have a dishwasher. But uh, she would listen to soap operas and then usually it was always on KNX, which was the CBS affiliate in Los Angeles. And I remember Johnny Dollar coming on in the afternoons in the 15-minute serialized version. Anyway, just that's, that's a fond memory. But that, uh, that particular episode had a really good cast. Had Virginia Gregg, as we just heard, Russell Thorson, who, of course, was big in I, I Love a Mystery. Uh, Barney Phillips was in it. Larry Thor. Parley Bear. Les Tremaine. And Bob Bailey. Yes, Bob Bailey. Thing I like the best, though, is the music was by Amerigo Marino. Man, I bet that guy never had a problem getting a date. What is your name? Amerigo Marino. Oh, yeah. Mommy, like. Woo! Yeah, see, I told you. I bet it was like, I bet it was like that for that guy all the time. Amerigo Marino. I mean, that name just, just reeks Latin lover. Oh my. 
Well, we'll have more episodes of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, in the weeks ahead. Smiling all along your way But more I cannot wish you Than to wish you find your love Your own true love this day Mansions I can wish you Seven footmen all in red And calling cards upon a silver tray But more I cannot wish you Than to wish you find your love Your own true love this day pretty tune. That's Liz Calloway, and that song is from Guys and Dolls. If I understand it right, that song was not in the motion picture, but it is on the original Broadway show. Tomorrow's the big day. Yes, tomorrow's CBS Radio's Redheader Day, as the redhead Arthur Godfrey returns to lead the parade of merriment and music on Arthur Godfrey Time. We've been featuring some comedy albums uh, over the past few weeks from the 60s, mostly from the 60s. And a lot of the early ones were sort of the uh, 
old folks from from the older generation, not not boomer generations, but more like our parents, people like Shelley Berman and uh, Bob Newhart. But this next comedian is perhaps one of the first of our contemporaries that uh, really made it big, and that's George Carlin. Thank you all. How you doing? One of the things that kids have to put up with is rules. Uh, they're not as bad as laws because they don't really throw you in the slammer on rules and they're not always written down somewhere. They're just rules. I was never very good at them. Well, I was good at breaking them. <laughs> but out of that, uh, outside of that, I wasn't too good with rules. I just didn't think they all made sense. Some of them seemed awfully dumb to me, rather arbitrary rules. Some of them were good. There were some good rules, no question. No running with the scissors. <laughs> That was one I never disobeyed. <laughs> Made sense to me. This will go right through me. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm not running with the scissors. <laughs> I was always sure of that. Another smart, good rule, I thought, was uh, no sticking your head out of the high-speed railroad train window. <laughs> hey, Dad, good rule. Doesn't want us to get our heads cut off. But they weren't all that good. Some of them were kind of dopey. Things like no singing at the table. One guy with a bad voice screwed it up for everybody else a hundred years ago? No singing at the table! Why not? Because I said so! That was always a sign of a dumb rule. Because I said so. You could scream your head off at the table, that wasn't mentioned. Not in the room. You could stand right near the table all during dinner and sing your head off. I'm standing near the table. During dinner and I'm singing And it isn't even covered by your room Sit down, you That was your middle name, you Another form of torture kids had to put up with Verbal cliches Lazy language On their parents' part Parents have a way of saying the same thing the same way all the time. Well, I guess if you're going to have to tell somebody something 1,800 times a day, no sense in trying to involve your imagination in it. Say it over and over. Get down off there! You want to break your neck? Get down! You'll break your neck! He'll break his neck up the dick here! Come over here, I'll break your neck if I see you up there! And pick up these toys! I nearly broke my neck coming in! That was the only injury I ever heard about! It's the only injury they ever mentioned! The worst one! Broken neck! They never mention anything you might get. Get down off there, you'll sprain that ankle. Broken neck. And we never had them in my neighborhood. I never saw one. They just didn't happen. I wondered what they looked like, man. Wow. I wondered, where do you put the sling? That's right. I couldn't figure it out. You gotta hold it yourself. I, uh, I broke my neck. Uh, I know. Did you, uh... Hold this for a minute. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. The only other injury there ever was, the only injury besides that was a delightful little thing called putting someone's eye out. Put that stick away. Put that stick down. You want to put somebody's eye out? Mm -hmm. But we had answers for the cliches. 
we kids, we had answers for them. We didn't get to deliver them. In no sense, getting beat up 14 times a day. We had answers for every cliche they had, didn't matter what it was. Don't you understand English? Not fully, no. How many times do I have to tell you? Six. Oh my, I thought you were looking for information. Don't talk back to me. Huh? You're teaching me a language, aren't you? You don't need no more practicing? You just wait until your father gets home. Oh, great, that dude never comes home. Thanks, man. And then they would tell you to go to your room, as though it were a negative experience. But why did they give you the room in the first place, if it's such a bad spot? Go to your room! Hey, that's where all my stuff is! Yeah. That was George Carlin. He's very funny, and uh, he really was a contemporary, an older boomer, granted, but uh, I guess he wasn't technically a baby boomer, but we could certainly all identify with him. And we're going to hear more from George Carlin at the end of the show. Something familiar. Something Something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> Well, if you're new to the show and you have not heard the Halls of Ivy before, you are in for a big treat. We play Halls of Ivy as often as we can on uh, Boomer Boulevard, but this is actually an episode tonight I have never played on any of my shows in the past nine to ten years. And I don't know why, but it's an oversight that we are going to fix tonight. Halls of Ivy isn't exactly a comedy. It fits better on the comedy corner than probably any place else. Some episodes are almost straight comedy. Others are very heartwarming, and some of them are fairly serious. But tonight we have one that is sort of a character study and a lot of fun with dialogue. Don Quinn, who wrote most of these episodes, was just a master of dialogue. And he has the perfect pair to read his words in Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. Ronald Coleman is very good as Professor Hall, but I don't care what you say. In my opinion, it's Benita Hume that steals the show as Vicky. All right, here we go. This was originally broadcast on March the 17th, 1950. And the name of this episode is Dirty Politics. And here it comes.
We love the halls of ivy. Please don't sing. Sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. And now, The Halls of Ivy. That surround us here today And we will not forget Though we be far, far away Welcome again to Ivy Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA Today is the windiest day of the windiest month of the year here at Ivy it's also the day chosen by the members of Ivy's Board of Governors for their quarterly meeting. I'll let those who will make the most of this coincidence. Ivy's president, Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, is out walking this afternoon with his wife, the former Victoria Cromwell of the English musical comedy stage. As they round the corner of the library, Mrs. Hall says... There's Mr. Wellman. Where? Where? Over there. Heading this way. Oh, yes. That's really a remarkable strut he has. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah, look at him. Look, he's marching four abreast all by himself. <laughs> I sometimes wonder, Victoria, if we're not a bit too hostile toward Mr. Wellman. You know, there's much to be said in his favor. He began life as a poor boy and pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He's now a power in the canned soup business and chairman of our board of governors. You've got to hand it to him. I know. If you don't, he just reaches out and grabs it anyway. <laughs> he seems to be smiling. A beastly little smile. Like the canary who swallowed the cat. Yeah. <laughs> Probably just thought of something to make the board bedevil you. Well, now, now, Vicky, we mustn't judge him too harshly. You haven't had a change of heart about him, have you? In Victoria, Mr. Wellman has often been arrogant and discourteous to me. He has occasionally been mean and spiteful. Nevertheless, there is something about the man that renders him, in my eyes at least, uh, obnoxious. <laughs> well, thank heaven. I thought for a moment you were ill. <laughs> oh, but I've been wondering if perhaps it wouldn't be better for the school if I tried to establish a friendlier relationship with him. What would your reaction be if I invited him to dinner this evening? My usual reaction. My shoulders would sag with delight. Oh, please, please don't invite him, Toddy. I ne never know what to talk to him about. I've always considered you a tower of strength conversationally. When Mr. Wellman is present, I'm a tower of jello. Let's, um, let's not rush into it. Oh, all right, my dear. Uh, another time, perhaps. Yes, later in the spring when the passenger pigeons return. Uh, darling, the passenger pigeon is extinct. How nice. <laughs> At any rate, I, I see no reason why I shouldn't offer him an olive branch, do you? No, except he's liable to bash you about the head with it. No, I think I can be relied upon to make him accept it in the spirit in which it's offered. If I say so myself, I'm a pretty good diplomat. You know, the even temper, the retort courteous, the subtle flattery, subtly conveyed, I... I have them all at my command when I set my mind to it. Um, Hall the Charm Boy, they used to call me. <laughs> now, you just watch me melt away his hostility. Mm. 
Ah, uh, good afternoon, Mr. Wellman. I couldn't, oh, uh, but... it's you, Hall. Mrs. Hall? Uh, yes, as, as I watched you coming toward us, I, I couldn't help thinking that much of your success must be due to the, the resoluteness so apparent in your walk with which you approach any task, even an ordinary meeting of the board. This isn't going to be an ordinary meeting, if I can help it. Far from it. Have you seen today's newspaper? Uh, no, I haven't. Here, read that. Read that! Hmm. Oh, I... Oh, I see. You're going to liven it up a bit, are you? Play a few practical jokes, eh? Oh, clever, very clever. What? What are you talking about? What are you reading? Listen, Vicky. Now on sale, largest collection of itch powder and dribble glasses in town. A million laughs. No, not the advertisement. The column next to it. Uh, oh. What? What is it? Town council passes resolution condemning vice on Ivy Campus. How how dare they perpetrate such an outrageous insult? The point, Dr. Hall, is how you dare permit such a condition to flourish here at the school. Mr. Wellman, surely you know as well as I there is no basis in fact for this 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 contemptible lie. I know only that for years, against your opposition, I have tried to do away with the very thing at which the town council now points an accusing finger. Willow Walk. Is that what the town council means by vice? Our local lover's lane? Precisely. And they're quite right, though it shames me to admit it. We all know what goes on in Willow Walk on spring evenings. Do we? What? <laughs> Never having been there myself, Mrs. Hall, I am not prepared with a bill of particulars. But I am equipped with an imagination. Then I suggest that if the town council must point an accusing finger at vice... Let it be pointed at your imagination. Ah, that's the only place on the campus that exists. <laughs> I shall, of course, discuss your interesting comments uh, about my imagination with the rest of the board this afternoon. And I request permission to appear in person and discuss it myself. Granted. I shall place the matter of the town council's resolution at the bottom of the agenda. We'll arrive at it around 4.30. I'll be there. Good afternoon, uh, Mrs. Hall. Where were we? Um, what, what were we talking about before this happened? Oh, diplomacy. Oh. The even temper, the retort courteous. Yes, I, I wasn't very diplomatic, was I? Oh, I don't know. As diplomacy goes these days. No. No, no I behaved badly. You didn't behave at all, I'm proud to say. The students were being vilely insulted, and so naturally you exploded. Yes, I really did, didn't I? You certainly did, I, I say. <laughs> Will you ever forget the expression on his face when you told him where you thought the town council ought to point? <laughs> <laughs> Never. <laughs> the memory of it will make me the jolliest ex-college president on the breadline. <laughs> oh, dear. I'll bet Wellman will work the board into a frenzy over this. Yes, unless I apologize. No, under the circumstances, I think bread is far more palatable than humble pie. What the devil provoked the town council to issue such a blast? So completely without foundation. I know that enmity between the town and the gown is proverbial in academic history, but... Hello, Victoria. Uh, oh, hello, Pauline. Oh, Good well. afternoon, Dr. Hall. Good afternoon. Would you like a lift? My car's right over there. No, thank you, Professor Larson. We're out for a stroll. Oh, you're dressed to the nines, Pauline. I never saw you look lovelier. 
Are you going on a date? Oh, no. I'm on my way to a council meeting at town hall. Do you think I look attractive enough to hold the councilman's attention for five minutes? That's all the time they've allotted me to speak against a bill they're mm. considering. I think they'd be only too happy to spend five minutes just looking at you. Why, thank you, dear. <laughs> um, is this to be a little field expedition on behalf of your political science department, Professor? Oh, no. No, the Town Civic Reform League has asked me to help stop the passage of a bill which extends, or practically without reservation, the powers of the town council. Oh. The boys in the back room are trying to push it through so as to help them rig elections more easily. Well, I'm sure you'll prove most effective. I doubt it. You see, the Reform League's only a few years old, while the local machine was already raiding the pork barrel at a time when Tammany Hall was just a gleam in Aaron Burr's eye. <laughs> no, I'm afraid this bill will go through with a whoop and a holler. Well, what in blazes is happening downtown? Yesterday, a baseless accusation of vice on the campus... Today, a crooked bill? Well, the machine has recently been taken over by Petey Granger, the honest brakeman. And he... The honest brakeman? Uh-huh. That's what the newspaper boys call him. Due to the fact that he once spent eight years working in the freight yards and never stole a locomotive. <laughs> he's a new broom and he sweeps dirty. And he's very much interested in you. In me? Mm -hmm. How do you know? He's been sitting in that convertible over there for the past few minutes, just staring at you. Mm, he's oh. a strange-looking bird, I must say. I've never seen such brilliant plumage. Are you familiar with the species, William? Oh, only through books, I'm sorry to admit. They're called uh, scalawags, sticky-fingered scalawags, or politicus corruptus. <laughs> they feed largely on public apathy, foul other birds' nests, and, although the plumage varies, may be easily identified by their bills, which are crooked, and their song, which sounds something like, what's in it for me, what's in it for me? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Let's have a closer look. Oh, I intend to immediately. Uh, Professor Larson, yes. if you should happen to think of some way of snaring this bird, I hope you'll inform me. I've a collector's itch to see him stuffed and mounted in the Ivy Museum of Natural History. Uh -huh. Come on, Vicky. Let's tackle Granger. Yeah, goodbye, Paulie, and good luck. Thank you, dear. Bye. Shall you um, have another go at diplomacy? Uh, at this time, I shall maintain an even temper. Coolness and calculation are the best weapons in situations like this, if I've read my Machiavelli correctly. Hmm. Uh, cool and calculating, therefore, I shall be. Uh, Mr. Granger? Quite right. Mr. Quite right. Mr. P.T. Granger? Quite right. Well, what the devil do you mean by accusing us of tolerating vice at the school? Darling, Machiavelli, Machiavelli. How dare you vilify us? How dare you besmirch us? Go ahead, Doc. Let it out. Only natural, considering. <laughs> Quite right. Quite right. I demand an explanation. Sure you do. Knew you would. Quite right. Now I suggest some other phrase, entirely correct or indubitably true. <laughs> you needle easy, Mrs. Hall. Uh, Doc, I made the council pass that resolution just to let you know I was around. Nothing personal in it, just politics. Leading up to a little favor I want you to do for me. You actually have the colossal gall to expect a favor of me? <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> You'll do it, too. I am not a betting man, Granger, but in this instance, I am prepared to give odds you're wrong. Uh, save your money, Doc. I got you taped from here to breakfast, and I say you'll do it. <laughs> you'll do it, or you'll learn that what the council did to the school yesterday is nothing compared to what I'm ready to make it do. <laughs> The way I got you pegged, you'll do almost anything to 
Save the school's fair name? <laughs> Isn't that the way you'd say it? Just what is it you want, Granger? Ready to play ball, eh? <laughs> Quite right, quite right. Uh, nothing else you can do. Doc, I'm getting ready to move into politics on a statewide basis. I don't know who yet, but I'm entering a candidate in the next election for governor. Whoever it turns out to be, I see him as a man just lousy with respectability. Go on, go on. Well, guess whose name I want right up at the top of the list of prominent people heartily endorsing my man. Granger, I am at a slight disadvantage in dealing with this situation, even after studying Plato's Republic, Moore's Utopia, and Aristotle's Politica. What state do they operate in? The state of enlightenment. I doubt if you've ever crossed the border. <laughs> However, cut it short, have... Doc. It's all settled anyway. <laughs> I got more important things to do. I got to listen to the race results in a couple of minutes. However, I have faced greater terrors than any you have so far conjured up. Differential calculus, astrophysics, and French irregular verbs, to name a few. A moment ago, you asked me to guess something. Now I'll ask you. Guess where I'll see you first... Before I grant you that favor. <laughs> Show and fight, eh? <laughs> quite right, quite right. Take a walk around the block, Doc, and think it over. I'll be here another 20 minutes. Enjoy those 20 minutes, Granger, because when I return, I am going to run you right out of town, so help me. What? Quite right, quite right. <laughs> of Ivy, we find a moody and reflective Dr. Hall sitting on a bench on the commons with Mrs. Hall, who's feeding the squirrels. Mrs. Hall says, Look at the greedy little beggars. Would you like to give them some nuts? Hmm? Nuts. Oh, my sentiments exactly. <laughs> Vicky, you've no idea how inadequate I feel. I've probably received more honorary degrees than Granger has third degrees. And yet, in certain spheres, he's an intellectual giant compared to me. He was cat-and-mousing me just now, and enjoying it, too. Mm. How can I possibly give students the implements with which they can meet life on its own terms when I myself am so utterly helpless? Well, you might add some new courses to the curriculum. Cynicism 1 and 2. But that's a long-range problem. <laughs> Closer at hand is the question, how is the honest brakeman to be handled? And let's not try to be diplomatic about it. Oh, I agree. This calls for knuckle dusters rather than kid loves. Mm, what else? As I see it, the only thing Granger has that I lack is the control of one to two thousand votes. And I doubt if I can supply this lack in the next few minutes. So that leaves only one alternative. Mm, change your name, grow a beard, and take up some other profession. It's something, something along those lines. Oh, this has turned out to be just about the most crisis-ridden stroll I've ever taken. <laughs> All I wanted to do this afternoon was to walk off an excellent lunch. So far, I've insulted the chairman of the board and been threatened with smear campaigns by a penny anti-politico. Well, life's full of little booby traps. Do you remember 
Our reception at the Red Lion Inn at Marlow, that last weekend in England. Oh, don't I? Now, now there was an infuriating quarter of an hour. <laughs> Remember that wild dash to the railroad station? Yeah. After the last show, the bumpy train rides, no taxi to meet us when we arrived at two in the morning. Yeah, and a one-mile hike to the inn in the rain, with <laughs> you staggering under all that luggage. Yes. And not a soul awake at the hotel to take care of us when we got there. Oh, I'll never forget it, never. Where is everyone? Oh, the place is absolutely deserted. <laughs> oh, Vicky, now, don't tell me you've caught cold. Oh, no, I haven't. At least I hope not. <laughs> sit here, darling. Sit here, near the fire. I'll, I'll poke it up a bit. Well, how deep there's a note for us on the desk? I, I told the landlord when I telephoned that we were rather late getting here... You assured me someone would wait, wait up for us. Well, look. It's a box with my name on it. Is there? Well, 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 open it, darling. Look, bring it over here and sit down. There. <clears throat> now give me your foot. I want to get those wet shoes off. Yeah. What's in it? It's a sack of flour. What on earth? Oh, good Lord. I told the landlord I wanted some flowers <laughs> for you. Flowers. Flowers. <laughs> the idiots. Uh, I'm sorry, darling. Well, please don't be. It was very sweet of you to have thought of it at all. Oh, I know. Much good it did. Oh, I'm going to knock at every door in the place till I find someone to look after us. No, Toddy, don't. There may be other couples here on a lovely weekend of their own. Well, I see no reason why they should be permitted to enjoy a weekend while we're condemned to a bench down here. Well, it's not so bad, really. Seems to be very soft wood. Oh, you're an angel, Vicky. <laughs> Always making the best of everything. Uh, sit down here. All right. Whoops! This is not soft wood. <laughs> Put your arms round me. Yeah. I feel better already. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry. Did I forestall a kiss? Oh, never mind, darling. I have plenty more. Look, <laughs> no, you, you, um, uh, just, just tell me when. Now. There. Well, this is more like it. Ah, Vicky, I'd planned it all so differently. I wanted our own comfortable room with a lovely fire going. A full moon outside the window and the smell of jasmine from the garden below. And somewhere a nightingale singing. It isn't really the season for nightingales. Well, then then I would have hired someone to do bird calls just for the occasion. <laughs> I can coo a little. Ah, do a little, my dove. Coo? Oh, that was a sad little dove, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, you know, darling, I'm sure of one thing. If we can surmount this kind of night, the rest of our married life ought to be smooth sailing. Then you're not beginning to lose the first fine full flush of enthusiasm. Lose it? Darling, you're soaked to the skin, your hair is almost up, your nose is red, and I have never seen anyone as ravishing. I love you, Vicky. And if it were ordained that we had to spend the rest of our lives sitting here feeling just as miserable, I'd say amen to it and enjoy every moment. Oh, Tony, kiss me quickly before I sneeze. Before and immediately after, <laughs> my darling. But, but, but let's move into this little sitting room. Why, why, look, Victoria... Isn't that amazing? What? Well, that motto over the door. It's exactly the same as the one at Ivy. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
I know, Toddy. It's always been there. Oh, no, my dear. You don't understand. You've never seen it. It's over the library door at Ivy College in America. Well, of course it is. I'm sitting right here looking at it. Come back, Toddy, wherever you are. Come back? Looking at it? Oh, you mean... Oh, oh! You mean here at Ivy? I do wish I could go with you when you set sail into space like that. Oh, oh you, you do go with me, Vicky. Do you think I'd leave my first mate behind? Oh, that was charming. <laughs> but I think we'd better head for home if you're going to upset Mr. Granger's wild and woolly plans. No, no, wait a moment. Wait, wait. I've just had an inspiration, Vicky. What? Seeing the library gave it to me. Let's go in. Whatever for? Well, in this library since 1640 has reposed the original charter of Ivy Township. When it was incorporated with 75 inhabitants, there must have been laws and statutes which were only intended to apply to a community that small. I'm going to snoop around and see if I can't hunt up some forgotten statute which might, might legislate Mr. Granger smack out of his smug, complacent skin. Vicky, I've got it. Tell, tell. Well, in 1757, when Ivy's population had swollen to 93 persons, the city fathers passed a law extending the vote on local affairs to anyone of voting age who had resided in the town for a minimum period of three months. No, you've lost me, my darling. I haven't got the faintest idea what you're talking about. Don't you realize that 1,500 Ivy students of voting age reside in this town for nine months every year? Doesn't that mean anything to you? Well, it... Makes for a very attractive campus. <laughs> yeah, but more attractive than you think. 1,500 votes will swing the entire balance of power in this town. Toddy, how wonderful! Well, this makes you a more powerful politico than Granger ever was. Of course it does. And when I explain the situation to the students, I'm sure they'll see eye to eye with and me. they'll go to the polls in droves. You know, if it hadn't been for Professor Larson, I never would have thought to look up the law. Remind me, Vicky, to, to call her as soon as she returns from the meeting. I'm going to increase the budget for the political science department. Come along, Victoria. I'm ready for Mr. Granger. I'm going to enjoy this. Don't be greedy, Toddy. Let me into the act, too. <laughs> of course. We, we'll cat and mouse him. Oh, oh, oh. Just watch Boss Hall in action. <laughs> be quiet, dear. He'll hear you. You're right on the nose, Doc. I was just about to turn on the ignition. <laughs> <laughs> what's so funny? <laughs> oh, yeah, I said, what's so funny? <laughs> you, you don't understand what's happening, and you're, and you're curious, aren't you? Yeah, quite right, quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me mad, Doc. I ask you a question. I expect an answer. Sure you do. Uh, you, you would. Quite right, quite right. <laughs> you both lost your minds? Oh, not at all. No, we're about to run you out of town and we're naturally pleased at the prospect. Nothing personal in it, you understand, just politics. Well, I'll give you ten seconds more, then I'll get mad. Quite right, quite right. <laughs> yeah, look at his face every time I say that, Toddy. <laughs> Mr. Granger, you noodle easy. What? Uh, needle, not noodle, Doc. <laughs> now... Pe pay close attention, honest Brickman. Yeah. I'm only going to say this once. Yeah. I've just completed a study of the laws of the town of Ivy. So what? You've made a small mistake. There's a forgotten but not obsolete statute here which renders more than 1,500 students at Ivy 
eligible to appear at the polls, eligible to take advantage of the statutes governing initiative, referendum, and recall. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Do you know the first thing we're going to do with our vote? We're going to build you a monument. Me? Yes, you. <laughs> a monument a thousand feet high, made of the rarest marble. Well, uh, I think possibly it'll be one inch wide. <laughs> it shouldn't cost more than a few million dollars. The college, of course, is non-taxable, so the property holders in town will have to pay for oh, it. Doc, listen. It's going to have your name plastered all over it, and each time they see it and think of the cost, they'll think of you. Fondly, devotedly. Oh, look, Doc. That's only the oh, no, beginning. Doc, wait a minute. He... Then I think we'll reconstruct Town Hall so that the elevators remain stationary while the building goes up and down. Doc, <laughs> please, wait. Let's make a deal. A deal does not interest me. But there is always unconditional surrender. Yeah. Yeah, there is, isn't there? Ain't there? Uh, well, uh, you got it. Uh, Unconditional surrender. I'll do anything you say. The first thing you'll do is to come with me to a meeting of our board of governors and inform them the town council was mistaken in its resolution yesterday and that it will retract and apologize. <laughs> Quite right. I mean, uh, uh, sure. Hey, only a jerk would have believed it anyway. I want you to tell that to the chairman of our board personally. <laughs> personally? To well? Yes, and in my presence. Doc, I got no right to ask, but will you do me a favor? Well, what is it? Do you teach politics here at Ivy? Yes, we have a political science department. I want to take that course. Enroll me. I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Now here again are Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. Well, it's late, Toddy. Time to close up. Have you finished whatever it is that you're writing? All but the last line, Vicky. It's a limerick. Hmm, perhaps I can help. How does it go? Uh, a guileless old fellow named Hall, on finding his back to the wall... Like Machiavelli, he managed so well he... Uh, hmm. could hardly be lived with at all. <laughs> very good, Master. <laughs> but seriously, I think you handled the case of the honest brakeman very well. I don't know. I'm afraid I slipped up on the retort courteous. You went even one better, Toddy. You gave them the reproof valiant. Well, so long as it wasn't the reply churlish, my dear. Good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs> We'll be seeing you next week at this time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Eleanor Audley, Edwin Max, and Herbert Butterfield. Tonight's script was written by Walter Brown Newman and Don Quinn. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn, directed by Nat Wolf, and presented by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Ken Carpenter speaking. Oh, we love that surround us here today, and we will not forget, though we be far, far away. Your tune for the stars on NBC.
was The Halls of Ivy. The name of that episode was Dirty Politics. And it was first broadcast back on the 17th of March in 1950. What a wonderful show. The Halls of Ivy was a comedy, but it was also very poignant, as you really kind of felt that tonight. But also, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes it got very serious. And one of the things that was unique about the Halls of Ivy was that it was ahead of its time a lot of times. Well, for instance, there was one episode that um, tackled the subject of Hell Week. That was first broadcast back on January 2nd, 1952. And it it really talked about the unforeseen dangers of of, um, fraternity hazing in colleges. And then there was another episode entitled The Chinese Student. And another one entitled The Leslie Hoff Painting, and we've played both of those. They both just dealt head-on with the uh, with the subject of racial bigotry. Another episode actually dealt with an unmarried student's pregnancy. So now remember, we're back in the early 50s. The show only ran from January 1950 to June 52. It actually won a Peabody Award in 1950. It It is. It's just one of my favorite shows. Unfortunately, many of the episodes aren't real good recordings, crystal clear recordings. I mean, some of them aren't terribly bad, but I sort of promise that uh, you're going to hear old-time radio shows in crystal clear sound. So if they're not real sharp, I tend not to play them. But by the way, this was made into a television show. You can actually go on to YouTube and uh, look up the Halls of Ivy, and they have at least one episode, I think perhaps many. I haven't looked for a while. It it wasn't as good a television show, and I'll tell you why. It was so early in the days of television that they had not mastered the uh, way you stage a show and the placement of the cameras and so on. And it's, it's odd because you'll see Ronald Coleman just sitting there obviously reading off of a cue card. I guess they hadn't convinced these actors yet that they had to memorize their lines just like they did in a Hollywood movie. They were learning. They were learning. Really, it's like comparing the radio shows from the 50s and the 60s to those in the uh, late 30s and early 40s. They just learned so much, and the uh, technology had become so much better. All right, more Halls of Ivy coming up in the weeks ahead. With pen in hand You sign your name Today at five I'll be on that train And you'll be free And I will be Alone So We can find the love we once knew. If you think I can't make everything up to you, then I'll be gone and you'll be on your own. 
on your own Can you take good care of Terry? Can you take her to school every day? Can you teach her how to play all the games that little girls play? Hear what I say. Can you teach her how to roll up her hair? That she says her prayers And if you can do these things Then maybe She won't miss me Maybe she won't miss me And tonight As you lay In that big lonely bed And you look at that pillow Where I lay my head With your heart on fire Will you have no desire To kiss me Or to hold me And if you can forget The good times we had If you don't think the good times They outweigh the bad Well then sign your name And I'll be on my way I'll be on my way Car. Oh, I used to like her so much. She could really sing. That's a Bobby Goldsboro tune, I believe, and he did a big hit version of it, and he did it from the male point of view, and this, of course, was from the mother's point of view, the wife's point of view. And just a beautiful, beautiful song. Vicki Carr, I have to look up some more songs from her and play them in the weeks ahead.
you know what that music means. That music means it is time for us to travel back to 1874. The place is Dodge City, Kansas. We are walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to run into Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. Got a good one tonight. This is one we have not played on Boomer Boulevard before. It was first broadcast on CBS on the 22nd of January in 1955. And this is a show with a message. It's entitled, The Sins of Our Fathers. And here it comes. city and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Morning, Doc. Chester. Uh, hello, Matt. Hey, we've been waiting for you, Mr. Dillon. Oh, is there something wrong? Yes, sir, it's Mr. Doby. He's at the desk in the hotel there. He's real upset about something. He wants to see you. All right. Uh, you both wait here for me. Huh? I'll be right out. Yes, sir. All right. Marshal Dillon, I've sure been wanting to see you. Oh, what's the trouble, Mr. Dobie? You got a riot in here or something? There'll be a riot if you don't get them people out of here, Marshal. What people? The Daggetts, that's who. Well, who are the Daggetts? Big Dan Daggett, he calls himself. And he is big, too, Marshal. I never heard of him. He's only been in Dodge since yesterday. He's one of them mountain men from on west. He's a hunter or something. One of them real hairy fellas. Shouldn't be allowed around other white men. Oh, why not? What's he doing? He's sitting in my hotel. I let him in before he told me. Before he told you what? It's better you see for yourself, Marshal. Room's right at the top of the stairs there. Well, okay, Dobie, let's go. It's true, ain't it, Marshal? 
that I don't have to let nobody stay in my hotel I don't want. I guess so, if you got a good reason. <laughs> I've got plenty of reasons. Three men have moved out already. Well, that sounds to me like he must have a box of rattlesnakes with him or something. Worse than that. This is room here. Uh, this is a double room, isn't it? He needs it. He needs a whole doggone prairie. And that's where he's going. Now, you tell him, Marshal. Hello? I got the U.S. Marshal with me this time, Daggett. Oh, I'm Marshal Dillon, Daggett. Doby wanted me to come over here and meet you. Come on in. Well, you were right about his being big, Doby. Man can't help being big. Uh, it's no offense. It's all right. There have been times I wished I was smaller. Not that I can't move as fast as any man. I'm easier to see is the only bad part. Tell me, Daggett, what's the trouble between you and Doby here? It ain't my trouble, Marshal. All right, Doby, I guess you better explain. There's nothing wrong here that I can see. It ain't him. It's his wife. What? You don't like my wife because she's an Indian, Marshal. That's a lie. What I care if she's an Indian? I don't understand. Where is she, Daggett? In another room. We'll bring her in here. Doby, you know what I could do to you with the fingers of this one hand? Just the fingers? Don't forget I got the marshal with me. I use the other hand on him. He starts ordering me around, too. Now, wait a minute. This kind of talk isn't doing any good. You're probably pretty good at that gun, marshal. But I've killed mountain lion with this knife. I ain't afraid of anything alive and not many ghosts. <laughs> ghosts? You even talk like a savage. All right, that's enough, Toby. Daggett, I didn't come here for a fight. I came to see what all the trouble's about. Now, if it's something that has to do with your wife, tell me. It has to do with Doby, not with my wife. That's a lie. Dan? There she is. Look, Marshal. If it is me they are talking about, Dan, why didn't you call me? It's nothing to do with you. He was trying to order me around. At least he was Dobie there. I only told you to get her in here so the marshal could see her. Well, now he's seen her. Now, what's all the fuss about? You're playing dumb, ain't you, Daggett? Wait a minute. I don't think he is. Tell me something. Where did you and Ms. Daggett meet? Near Denver. Near Denver? Well, I'm a mountain man, Marshal. Never been on the prairie before. Now, what were you doing near Denver, Ms. Daggett? I was sent there four years ago to complete my education. My father was a chief, Marshal. A chief? What chief? His name was Yellow Horse. Yellow Horse? That's worse. That's the worst yet. I don't understand either of you men. What are you talking about? Well, Dobie could tell that your wife was a Kiowa by the way she dressed. Well, she got to come from some tribe, don't she? Yeah, but being the daughter of Yellow Horse makes it even worse. Why? Two years ago, the Kiowas killed some 18 settlers on raids through the country near here. Yellow Horse led them until he was killed. You never told me that. Is that true? I only heard my father was dead. He told me nothing else. Well, what difference does it make anyway? 
You wasn't on them raids. The feeling's still high against Kiowas around here, Daggett, but you're right. She had nothing to do with them. A Kiowas, a Kiowa, and we won't stand for him and die. Oh, don't be a fool, Dobby. How can you blame her for what somebody else did? I blame that whole tribe, and especially her father. And I won't stand for her being here. She's probably as murdering as he was. Dobby. All right, hold it, Daggett. I, uh, I'd like to apologize to Ms. Daggett for bothering her. Apologize? Let's get out of here, Dobie. Now. No. You come here to throw him out, and you're going to do it. Dobie, I guess I'm a little like Dan Daggett here. I don't like taking orders very well either. All right, Marshal. If the law won't help me... The law won't help you. And don't you try anything else. Now, come on, we're getting out of here. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Justin? Well, uh, would you mind stopping in Mr. Jones' store here? It, it won't take but a minute or two. Oh? You're going to spend your betting money on clothes again? Oh, no, sir. I mean, well, you see, Mr. Dillon, I, I need a little string tie. Uh, for Sundays, kind of. Oh. They don't cost more than a quarter. <laughs> All right, in that case, I'll go with you. There's Miss Kitty. Hi, Miss Kitty. Hello, Chester. Uh, the ties is hanging back over there, Mr. Dillon. I, I won't be long. All right, Chester. Well, you're as bad as Chester, Kitty. <laughs> always buying clothes. As Chester? Matt, if Chester's always buying clothes, how come ever since I've known him, he's worn that same pair of striped pants? <laughs> well, he's careful with them, I guess. <laughs> he never gets them torn. <laughs> You'd have to go to bed if he ever did. <laughs> Where's Mr. Jonas? Out back. He's showing Dan Daggett and his wife something. Oh, are they here? Sure. He introduced me to him. Big Dan Daggett. Like you said last night, Matt, he earned the name. He's a buffalo, that man. <laughs> yeah, he sure is. His wife's name's Rose. Said you couldn't pronounce it in Indian, so he made it English. She's a beautiful little thing. Ah, she's prettier than most women around here. Thanks. Uh, oh, no, no, Kitty. No. I, I... You're right. She really is. I guess Dan Daggett can't be all brute, or a girl like that would never have married him. Yeah, it's too bad Dobie over at the Dodge House can't see it your way, Kitty. No, Dobie's just not thinking very straight. Where's Jonas? Oh, he's out back, Rodin. Oh, hello, Marshal. I didn't recognize you. Oh, here he comes. Who's that, Matt? His name's Roden. He works over at one of the stables. Oh, that explains why he's too poor ever to come into the Long Branch. <laughs> Jonas! Hey, Jonas! I'll be right with you, Roden. Well, I'm in a hurry. It won't be but a minute. Well, I ain't waiting while you sell beads to her. Hey, wait a minute. What's she doing in here, anyway? Uh, you stay here, Kitty. Yeah. She's got as much right to be here as you have, Rodin. A Kiowa woman? You gone crazy? Well, no. Then throw her out of here. Or I will. The woman is my wife, mister. Your wife? Your wife? You'll have to throw me out, too. What? Now, now look here. I, I didn't mean nothing. If you don't mean nothing, then don't talk. Sure, sure. What do I care? It's your business. I don't care. And even if you do care, 
You shouldn't say nothing about it out loud. I ain't saying nothing. I gotta go now. I gotta go. Well, it looks like you handle that pretty well, Daggett. Can't fight every man in the world. No, I guess you can't. And I don't aim to. Long as they don't push me too far. Uh, is uh, Dobie leaving you alone? Oh, he's doing a lot of talking around. He's trying to stir up trouble. But before it comes, we'll probably be gone. Back to Colorado in the mountains. Oh. But Marshal... Uh, yeah. Uh, you come and see us sometime in the next day or so. Rose would kind of like that. Well, thank you, Daggett. It'd be a pleasure. Doc at this morning, Mr. Dillon. I've been up to his office twice, and he ain't there. Well, he was called out to the Duke place last night, Chester. Oh, somebody sick? Well, Doc doesn't get many social calls, you know. I was calling on him social. Huh? Oh, well, he'll appreciate that, I'm sure. Well, I think I'll go up to the Dodge house and make a call on Jim Doby. Mm. More trouble, Mr. Dillon? Well, there will be if somebody doesn't stop him. He's been talking to everybody who'll listen about Rose Daggett being Yellow Horse's daughter. How they ought to run her out of town. It's like he's looking for help, ain't it? Yeah. You ought to know better than that, a man like Doby. Well, that's what I'm going to try to explain to him, Chester. Marshal? Uh, hello, Daggett. Marshal. Uh, I'm kind of worried. Why, what's the matter? It's Rose. I can't find her nowhere. You can't find her? No. Well, maybe you and Chester will help look for her. I've been everywhere. Of course we'll help you. Now, where did you see her last? Oh, right in our room. Let me tell you, I woke up real early. Couldn't get back to sleep. Didn't want to bother Rose, so I, I got dressed. I went out in the street and I walked around... I wasn't gone more than one hour, Marshal. Shouldn't never have left her. Well, did you ask him at the hotel? Did anybody see her leave? Well, there wasn't nobody at the hotel. Not when I went out, not when I come back. Nobody could have seen her. Well, where could she have gone to that hour in the morning? She wouldn't have gone nowhere, Chester, not Rose. What I can't understand. Well, all right, let's start looking for her. Oh, come on. Uh, I guess we'll start with a hotel. Sure do want to thank you for this, Marshal. You too, Chester. Oh, uh, we'll find her, don't you worry. Hey, there. Yeah, it sure is. Look, he's got somebody with him. That's Rose. That's Rose in that buggy. Rose? Rose, what are you doing there? Hello, Dan. Well, get down. Here, I'll take you. You... You will have to carry me, Dan. Where you been? What happened to your feet? Uh, Chester. What, Doc? Do me a favor. Take this buggy, will you? Sure, I will. Uh, 
Ah, and you. You must be Daggett. Yeah. Now take Rose into the marshal's office. She shouldn't be on the street out here. We'll go. Hmm. She told me about her husband, Matt, but she didn't tell me that he was that big. Come on, let's follow him. Yeah. Tell me, Doc, uh, what was Rose doing with you? I found her out in the prairie, about ten miles east of here. Well, what was she doing out there? Uh, I'll let her tell you that. Just you stay and sit right there, Rose. I'm all right there. Oh, Doctor, this is my husband, Dan. Well, I kind of gathered that, Rose. Glad to know you, Dan. Yeah. Good thing you come along, Doc. You feel up to telling the whole story, Rose? Mm-hmm. I expect the marshal here will be interested, too. Yes, all right. Ah, good. And then I want you to come up to my office with me. Yes, Doctor. Has she been hurt, Doc? Go ahead, Rose. Tell me. Well, early this morning, I woke up when somebody tied a bandana over my face. Never should have left you alone. Oh, that is foolish talk, Dan. It was not your fault. Go on, Rose. Well, it was two men... They never said a word the whole time. They never talked once. But they carried me out the back way. And then they tied me onto a horse and led it way out into the prairie. They finally stopped and took me off and untied me. And then they took my shoes away. And they rode off. Finally got the blindfold off. And I, I walked and walked till I saw it. The doctor's buggy coming. I could not have walked much farther. Rose. Rose. Now, wait a minute, Dan. Rose, you never saw these men. No. And you never heard their voices. No, but but I heard them walk. Everybody has a different walk. Or did you recognize either of them from hearing them walk? No. It was not Dobie or that man in the store. We'll find them, Rose. We'll sit on the street and we'll listen until we find them. When we do, I'll cut them. I'll cut them awful before I kill them. No, Daggett. You let Rose find them if she can, and then I'll take them. They're mine, Marshal. They're just as much mine as Rose is mine. I wouldn't let nobody else in the world touch them but me. That'd be murder. Is that what you call it? Rose, Doc wants you in his office. You go along now. And then we'll start listening. It's as good a way to hunt as any. For the next few days, the Daggetts took up their post on the boardwalk halfway down Front Street. Rose had sit there for hours, her head down, her eyes half-closed listening to the footsteps of hundreds of men as they passed. And Daggett would stand at her side, his bowie knife in his belt, waiting with animal patience for a sign from his wife. But it didn't come. And I began to hope that for his sake, the kidnappers had left the country and nothing had happened. And then the morning of the third day, Chester and I were loafing around on the porch of the general store. Well, where's the Daggett's this morning, Mr. Dillon? They ain't over there where they usually are. Well, I guess they haven't started yet, Chester. 
I swear every man in Dodge must have walked past there by now. All but two, maybe. Mm. Morning, Marshal. Chester. Hello, Mr. Doby. Doby. I'm looking for the Daggetts, Marshal. You seen them? No, I haven't, Doby. But Dan Daggett isn't taking things as easy as he was. If I were you, I'd stop looking right now. Doc told me what happened, Marshal. Doc did, huh? Well, he knew nobody else would, so he took it on himself. What for? For my own good, the way he put it. Well, did it do you any good? Made me mad. Mad at myself, mostly. Marshal, I've been a fool. Hey, Mr. Dillon, there's Rose now. In, In the street there. She's got a shotgun. Hey, what's she doing? Looks like she's following those two men. Oh, she sure is. Come on. She stopped them. She's got them turned around. But... See, she's going to shoot them. Oh, they ain't making a move. How do you know it was us? What if it was? I guess you ain't learned nothing. Maybe we'll have to do it again. Don't shoot, Rose. I'll take them. shotgun rose. It is empty, Marshal. Why did you do it? I'd have arrested them. Dan would have found a way to kill them, even if you had. They're dead, Mr. Dillon. Both of them. Who are they, Chester? I never saw them before in my life. A couple of strangers, I guess. Rose! I'll go get somebody to give me a hand. Rose! Was that them? Why didn't you tell me? What'd you run away for? Why'd you kill them? They are the ones, Dan. How'd you know? Where did you spot them? They walked past our table while we were eating breakfast. And you said you was going up to our room. I did go. Long enough to get the shotgun. Why didn't you tell me? Why'd you have to kill them? I could not see you hang for what happened to me, Dan. I'd have gladly hung for it. Anything's better than your going to jail. I will not mind, Dan. It'll kill you. I won't let it happen. It ain't right. Don't try to take her, Marshal. Don't you try. I know how you feel, Daggett. But I've got to arrest her. Rose has got to stand trial. What'll they do to her? Well, I don't think there's a judge in Kansas who'd convict Rose for what she did under the circumstances. Marshal Dillon. Yes, what, Doby? I got to say something, Marshal. All right, say it. Them two men she killed. I just looked at them, and I, I don't know who they are. But I've seen them. So? I seen them the other day when I was talking the way I was. They heard me. They was listening. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I just had to tell you that. I I don't feel very proud. You're the one that ought to go to jail, Dobby. That's what I'm trying to tell you, Marshal. It's mostly my fault. What happened to her and this killing and all. Well, you've learned something now, anyway. Only there's nothing I can do about it. Too late, I, I 
feel like hiding. Mr. Doby. Yes, ma'am? Would you walk back to the hotel with me and my husband? Thank you. I'd be proud to. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Lillian Bayef, Clayton Post, and Joe Duval. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Listen to Chesterfield's two great radio shows every week. The Perry Como Show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And Dragnet, Tuesday nights on another network. Remember, listen again next week for another transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's Gunsmoke. Brought to you by L&M Filter. This is the CBS Radio Network. Sins of Our Fathers, as heard on Gunsmoke, January 22nd, 1955. That script was written by uh, John Meston. And we were just talking about racial bigotry being brought out on the Halls of Ivy. And here, here we've got an episode of Gunsmoke that addressed the same thing. He had several episodes. He had one that addressed uh, the animosity that was felt toward the Chinese, which, which is very true. And, of course, toward Native Americans, John Meston grew up in the Four Corners area of the United States. So he was very familiar with uh, Native Americans and Old Western lore. And I think that was just an outstanding, outstanding episode of Gunsmoke. We um, just heard that that featured Larry Dopkin. Harry Bartell was Mr. Doby. Clayton Post and Joe Duvall. That was Lillian Byatt in the lead role, of course, along with uh, William Conrad. and. Howard McNear and Parley Bear, Georgia Ellis. But Lillian Byatt, I know very little about her, and I can find very little about her. Uh, she's not in any of the desk references I have. I looked her up on Internet Movie Database. There's nothing. And I also looked her up uh, on Google. 
and just really couldn't find anything at all. So I would be interested to know more about her because she was in many episodes of the uh, radio shows that were done in Hollywood in the 50s and and, uh, early 60s. If you like Gunsmoke as much as I do, you can go to uh, boomerboulevard.com, and we now have all of our shows on there. And I'm still working a little bit on the indexing. That'll be done in the next week or so. But it's still pretty easy to navigate around in there now. And we've got 73 episodes of Gunsmoke on there. (laughs) So have at it, folks. 73 different episodes. Some of those were played a couple of times, but uh, 73 episodes. Not bad. BoomerBoulevard.com. You are very welcome to come over there. And, of course, you can, while you're there, why not subscribe to our podcast and you'll have this show delivered to you each uh, each time it is released, every two weeks. All right, I promised you a little more George Carlin, and that's exactly what you're going to get. And we were just talking about Native Americans. So here was George Carlin with a bit he did back in the 60s that I guess you'd have to say is probably politically incorrect. But in the meantime, we will have another episode of Gunsmoke the next time we get together. Uh, I've been watching the westerns, all of us have been watching western movies, an endless stream of them, for our entire lives, and I've noticed something about them. When the westerns involve Indians, and sometimes they don't, sometimes it's Brian Donlevy with a black hat and a crooked card game. (laughs) When they involve Indians, the big scene always seems to be when the Indians finally attack the cowboys. We've been waiting for it throughout the entire movie, you can see them standing on the hill. And uh, that's the big scene, when they finally get to him, and you always see exactly how the cowboys prepare for this attack. They're pulling wagons around in a circle. Get them old ladies up there loading up the weapons. Come on, now tear up their petticoats, use them as bandages. Get that water up there. It's sand, sand. Big hassle, we never see how the Indians prepare. <laughs> and it's their attack, right? Now, the Indians were good fighters. Just because they started in Massachusetts and wound up defending Malibu doesn't mean they <laughs> play the game with them. Uh, as I say, now, the Indians were good fighters, and if this is so, they must have been well organized. There must have been a way to divide their manpower. It, it wasn't just one old chief, many moon come Choctaw, and a lot of guys running. <laughs> there had to be intermediate authority, a way to divide their manpower. No army can make it without a sergeant, a tough, veteran, battle-hardened sergeant, and the Indians were no exception. All right, all the tall guys over by the trees. (laughs) Fat guys down behind the rocks. You with the beads, out of line. All right, knock off the horseplay. Come on, knock off the horseplay. Come on, you guys over there playing with the horse, will you knock it off? have all been given a piece of birch bark and an eagle dipped in feathers blood. I mean a feather dipped in eagle. I always like to say something wrong so you don't feel at ease. We want us to write on the birch bark in the upper right hand corner. And that's the upper right hand corner. That's your arrow hand. 
to write your name. Last name first, first name last. Your name is Running Bear, you write uh, Bear, Running. <laughs> By the way, you guys with middle initials, please include them, such as uh, Wolf, Howling W. <laughs> we need your uh, name, we want your age, and summers. I've been alive for 14 summers, you put down 14 summers. You've been alive for 16 summers, you put, yes, prancing antelope. <laughs> if you were born in the winter, put it down. <laughs> There's one in every village. All right, a lot of you have been asking me about the promotion list. You'd like to make brave second class. I'd like to get another scar up on your arm. But I'm happy to say the results of your early tests are coming. You're doing beautifully. Burning settlers' homes, everybody passed. Imitating a coyote, everybody passed. Sneaking quietly through the woods, everybody passed, except limping ox. However, our limping ox is being fitted with a pair of corrective moccasins. Yeah, he should be up and dancing in no time at all. <laughs> now, there are two other areas on which you will be tested. Running down the hill yelling like a nut. <laughs> and leaping off the cliff. Leaping off the cliff is generally considered to be the tougher of the two. A lot of fellas like to save that one for last. <laughs> Got a couple other announcements for you here. First of all, the fertility rights have been called off. <laughs> Due to the recent cold wave. <laughs> There'll be a rain dance Friday night. Weather permitting. Great band, great band, Leaping Lizard and the All-Stars will be there. My only favorite tunes, Pass That Peace Pipe, Indian Love Call, all of them. you've come to know and love. I got one other item goes on your clothing list. That is your loin cloth. And that appears on your list as one each cloth loin type. If there is your loin cloth, you'll want to get to know and love your loin cloth. Someday it may save your life. Be a massacre tonight at nine o'clock. Lean <laughs> down by the bonfire, we dance around a little and move out. This is the fourth straight night we've attacked the fort. However, tonight it will not be as easy. Tonight there will be soldiers in the fort. <laughs> Happy to say I'll be leading the massacre. I'll be down front running. You'll see me. I'm the one that's on fire. <laughs> Now your, uh, your equipment, your uniform of the day, this here is a Class A formal massacre. That's the Class A summer loincloth. Two green stripes over the eye, no feather. Arms are blue, legs are red, chest is optional. Might put a little yellow on the bellies. And your equipment, three large knives, three small knives, three medium-sized knives, two rock tomahawks, two shell tomahawks, five spears, three bows, and 30 arrows. Now, if any of this equipment is not used tonight, please make sure it is returned to the souvenir shop by tomorrow morning. Well, I hope nobody was offended by that. He did have a uh, 
unique perspective, a, neat, a unique way of presenting things. And he, he was just very different at the time. Of course, a lot of people have impersonated him, or imitated him, I should say, in the years since. But he was an original, George Carlin. Folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, we'll be back in two weeks and we'll do it all over again. All right, everybody, thanks so much for being with us this week. This is Bob Bro, and I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Wait, let me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude.